Although there are times that, even as a country, we feel that we are in deep waters, over our head, unable to navigate or figure out what to do or where to go. We also feel that way as individuals. And I just pray, Lord, today that you would build hope where there's hopelessness. Father, that you would give us a new realization that no matter what we see around us, that you still are sovereign God. And sometimes you draw us into those deep waters so we can experience your grace and your power, your deliverance. God, we acknowledge our dependence on you as a nation, as a people. And we ask for your wisdom, your insight, your power, and that you would, by your mercy and grace, move on the behalf of our people. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged today and that your word would change our lives. We know that you promise that your word will not return void. It'll accomplish what you've set it out to accomplish. So we're asking you to do that today. Change us today by your presence and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What is love? Last Sunday, we began our study of love in 1 Corinthians 13. If you weren't here, and many of you were on vacation or out of town or whatever, I encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon from last Sunday. It'll give you the whole context of, of what we're talking about. We began by looking at three Greek words that mean love. The first one is eros, which is physical or sensual love. The second is phileo, which is brotherly love or platonic affection. And then the third word is agape or selfless love. It's sacrificial love. It's love for those that don't deserve love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the word used for love is agape. It's this selfless love, the kind of love that God showed us by sending Jesus. In Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, before we got our act together, before we had any way to deserve anything, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's undeserved love, and that's the love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Then we looked at the importance of love. There was this church in, in this ancient city of Corinth that had all the right trappings. They were doing all of the right things. They had this religious activity. They had all the, uh, the spiritual gifts, the tongues and prophecy. They had great faith. They were exercising great sacrifice. But there was a missing ingredient to all their good works. And that missing ingredient was love. Love. And the Apostle Paul says to them, without love, all the, everything that you're doing is worthless. It's nothing. There's nothing to it. All of our great actions will have no lasting effect and make no impact. Everything we do is meaningless without love. Next, we looked at the character of love. Love is, and then we looked at the first nine, and we have those listed up here. Patience. Love is patient, mainly patient with people. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, it's not self-seeking. 
is not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love forgives and forgets. That's, that's a hard, hard thing to do. So now we know how impossible it is to practice that kind of love. And we realize that only God can produce that kind of love in us by his Holy Spirit. That's a good place to be in because when the bar is that high and we say, I can't attain to that, I guess I need God. God can produce that. So let's finish the chapter as we look today at always, always. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It's on page 932 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Or you can look at it on your iPad or iPhone or tablet device. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to just read starting at verse 6 today. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's jump into the the 10th character quality of love. It says, love, number 10, does not delight in evil. Or, love does not celebrate evil. Or, it does not celebrate bad news. Bad news. Now, how many of you watched the news on TV this week? Anybody? Okay. Lots of stuff going on this week. Reading a newspaper. Maybe you read a news magazine or read the news online. How many of you can recall one, just one, good news story? A good news story. Nobody. One. Okay, I got one. One good news story. We hear a lot of bad news. We hear very little good news. Why? Because bad news sells. It sells advertising. It sells newspapers and magazines and website advertising. Bad news sells. If it's a disaster or if there's dirt. Why, why, do the tablo- why are the tabloids so successful? Because inquiring minds want to know... The dirt, it's exactly what it is. In a very perverse way, our culture celebrates evil and celebrates bad news. There is some good news in our world. It doesn't mean everything is great, but at least tell us the good news, not just the bad news. See, there's something very perverse about human nature that likes to hear bad news about someone else, of course. Somehow people take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. The fact seems to make us more eager to hear the bad news than the good news. Well, love, love keeps us from enjoying that perversion, enjoying when bad things happen to other people. Now, you place this tendency against love together with jealousy and selfishness or competition, and we can see the results. Most gossip, and we've talked about gossip from time to time over the last year, 
Most gossip centers around bad news or misfortune. Did you hear what happened to, and everybody's ears perk up, they want to hear what happened to whoever. Gossip, bad news, or competition. If we're competitive, we will view our opponent's demise with a degree of satisfaction. And I'm not talking about Green Bay versus Seahawks. That, that, that happens also as we do that. Competition. There's nothing wrong with good, healthy competition. But competition, like covetousness, has, has two sides. We, last week we talked about coveting as wanting something that someone else has. The, the other side of coveting is, is seeing what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. It's a very insidious side to coveting. Well, just like that, competition has two sides to it. The positive side is I'm going to do the best I can possibly do to reach what I can do best and, and, and win, if possible. The negative is wanting our opponent to do the worst possible to fail or to get hurt so that I can win. See, there's a positive and a negative to competition. One delights in evil. One actually delights in good. Love does not delight in evil. But, number 11, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Now, to rejoice with the truth, one must first believe there is truth. Okay? And believe it or not, this didn't used to be a question, but you have to believe there actually is truth. Now, how many of you believe in gravity? Okay, is that an absolute truth? Okay, that's good. I'm glad to see that. Um, how many of you believe in aging? Aging is real, okay. No, and that's, that's some of you said, no, not anymore. We, we quit having birthdays. How many believe that he who sits on attack is better off? That's usually a delay on that. It's just delay. Truth. Now, since evil and truth are contrasted in verse 6, truth most likely refers to the good news or the gospel or the word of God. And there are times in all of our lives we would rather not hear the truth. We know that the truth, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, but first it may make you miserable. That's very true. But the truth, the word of God, reveals things in us and in our world that need changing. And Christian love has no desire to hide the truth of God. It wants the truth known. We want the truth out there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we have an issue with biblical truth today. We have an issue with that. Now, in particular, millennials, teens, and 20-somethings like to talk about their beliefs. And many profess to believe in God. They believe in God but they won't say anything about Jesus. Talk about God, not Jesus. In fact, many who are professing Christians will talk about their belief in God, but will never use the name Jesus. Why will they never talk about Jesus? Because God is a generic, universal, inclusive, and non-offensive term that the vast majority of people believe in. In fact, just this last week, Gallup did a poll on Americans have found that 89% of Americans believe in, in God. 89%. Whatever he, she, or it means to you. So God, well, that's not so offensive, but Jesus. Why is Jesus so offensive to people? Because Jesus claimed to be the exclusive 
one way to God. And if you say, I believe in Jesus, that means you're saying you're right and they're wrong. And that's not PC. We dare not tell anyone that we're right and they're wrong. It's your truth and my truth. And God is this overarching whatever. Everybody can kind of believe in a God. But you don't want to talk about Jesus because that offends people because that means that you believe that there's only one way to God. Love rejoices in the truth because it is only through the truth of Jesus that people can really be set free. Love rejoices in the exposure of truth and falsehood, of right and wrong. And I'm talking about truth, all truth. We all want to hear the truth about God's love and forgiveness. God forgives everything, okay? Is that true? Yes, that is true. That is true. But if we only talk about God's love and not God's judgment, then it's half truth. We, we cannot be selective with truth. We must rejoice in truth, all of the truth. We can't only talk about heaven, we must also warn about hell. God's mercy, God's love, and his patience and forgiveness, yes, but also God's justice, his wrath, and his judgment. Rejoice in the truth, the whole, what's called the whole counsel of God. When we hear truth that brings conviction, that ought to make us happy. It's God's way of pointing us in the right direction. Now, I was at a minister's seminar some time ago, and one of the speakers, a pastor, says, when I preach, I want people to feel good. I want people to feel good. I want them to leave church feeling good. And I thought, you know, I would love to do that, but some parts of God's word, the Bible, truth, makes us feel sad, makes us feel bad, not glad, See, there's the, there's the law which says, this is what God's standards are, and you don't measure up. I'm sorry, you all have sinned and fall short. I'm sorry, you're not going to measure up. That's the law. Well, and then the good news is Jesus came to forgive us so that, that, that he would pay the price. One's the law, one's the gospel. The law makes you feel bad, the gospel makes you feel good. But you can't just preach one or the other. There has to be a balance between the law and the gospel. In 2 Timothy 4, Timothy was a young a brand new young preacher, pastor, and the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to him and he said this to him. He said, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, oh, I don't like that. Rebuke, oh, and encourage. Oh, I like that, encourage. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Do we see any of that today? Just, oh, tell me what I want to hear. I want to feel good, so just tell me the good stuff. Don't tell me, you know, that's not loving the truth. Love loves the truth. There's a, a comedian who happens to also be an atheist. His name is Penn Gillette. And I want to illustrate from his perspective this morning in a short video of his perspective of truth and the attitude towards truth. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, 
and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was old on big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, I, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props in the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff, no reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And, uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize 
and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? Words from Penn Jillette. Do we love the truth and believe in the truth enough to let it be known? Are there any pilots here? Anybody here fly? Fly airplanes? Anybody? Nobody else is insane. Okay, we had one in the first service. Uh, I took one flying lesson. Judy made me quit. But when you take, take flying lessons, pilot training, they teach you how to fly. But they also teach you what to do when things go wrong, when there's an engine stall or engine failure, and how to crash a plane. Well, the Bible teaches us how to fly. That's part of the truth. But it also teaches us what to do when we crash. That's the whole truth. It's not one-sided. How to avoid crashes. Love rejoices in the truth. Love, number 12, puts up with anything. Love puts up with anything. Or in a different version says it bears all things. Or it always protects. There's, it has endurance, endures all things. Any insult, any injury, any disappointment. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know, we all experience injustice. We all experience abuse at times. That doesn't mean we should stay in an abusive relationship. But love may dictate getting out of abusive relationship, but love is putting up with a lot. And it says love covers a multitude of sins. A story is told of a psychology professor who had no children of his own, and whenever he saw a neighbor scolding a child for some wrongdoing, he'd say, you should, shouldn't punish you shouldn't punish your son, you should love him. Well, one afternoon, the professor was doing some repair work on the concrete driveway that was leading to his garage, and he was tired after several hours of work and covered it with sweat. He put his trowel down and started back toward the house. Just then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a mischievous little boy, his neighbor boy, putting his foot into the fresh cement. He rushed over and grabbed him and was about to spank him severely when his neighbor leaned out the window and said, Watch it, professor. Don't you remember, you must love the child. As he yelled back furiously, he said, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> I can love my enemies. That's kind of abstract, but what about my friend or my family member, someone who was unjust to me, someone who hurt me? The closer the relationship, the deeper the wound. Love puts up with anything. It bears all things. Thirteen, love always trusts. In other words, believes all things. Now, this is not childlike naivety. It's not being gullible. It means trusting always. When we love, we trust. 
we give the benefit of the doubt. We think the best and not the worst. Now, the older we get, the more stuff of life that we experience, the more cynical we become. People disappoint us, people hurt us, they abuse us, they betray us, and we just quit thinking the best anymore. That's why we really need supernatural help to think the best, because love like that, it's not in us. It's not in us. Remember the Gatorade commercial that shows an athlete working out and there's this fluorescent fluid coming out of the pores of the athlete that's working out? How many have seen that commercial? Okay. And the question comes up, is it in you? Is it in you? Meaning Gatorade, is that in you? Well, let me ask you a question. What happens when you squeeze a lemon? What comes out of a lemon when you squeeze a lemon? Well, actually, whatever's inside the lemon comes out. Whatever's inside the lemon. When we get squeezed, what comes out? Whatever's inside of us. And the question is, is it in you? Is love in you when you get squeezed? Is it Jesus' love that comes out? Is it God's love that comes out? Is it in you? Love always trusts. That's where we need supernatural help. Number 14, love always hopes. This is in like a future sense, the future eyes. Love never ceases to have faith. Love never gives up. Jim and Carol Simbola, who pastored the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, told us a story of their daughter. They later published it in one of their books. They had been in ministry for many years, and their middle daughter, the well-behaved model child, who had never, ever been in trouble, as a teenager, ran away from home. She just disappeared, and she was gone for over a year. They heard bits and pieces that she was alive, but they had no way to contact her. She was just gone, off the radar completely. Jim and Carol loved their daughter with the love of parents, a parental love. It was the love of hope. They always hoped. They never gave up. And that kind of love can be extremely painful because it keeps the affection alive. It's an exercise in pain. One night, their daughter returned. A knock on the door. They went to the door, and there on the doorstep was Chrissy, disheveled, dirty, ragged, and about five months pregnant, finally ready to come home. Jim and Carol had never given up hope. Their daughter later wrote a song. We sang it in worship. You may have too. It's called Everlasting Hope to describe the love that never stopped hoping. Today, their daughter Chrissy is a pastor's wife with her own children. See, love always hopes. Don't give up hope. I don't know if you need that kind of love today. For a wayward son or a daughter or grandchild, maybe the hope for a restoration of a relationship. Love always hopes. Number 15, love always perseveres. In other words, it always endures through every circumstance. This is not a passive verb of just enduring. It's an active verb and the spirit that can actively conquer and overcome. Love that can conquer and overcome things. This is a supernatural love 
that's powerful. Well, that's the character of love. Let's look at the permanence of love. Let's look at the permanence of love. Five lessons. Five lessons. In verse 8, we discover, first of all, that spiritual gifts are temporary. It says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We have this age, and we have the age to come. And spiritual gifts, as we understand spiritual gifts, are part of this age, but someday they will pass away. Okay? Not now. We are in the church age. We have the age to come. That's the future. That doesn't mean the gifts are invalid. They're, they're the gifts that are for this life prior to the coming age. Secondly, our knowledge is incomplete. Our knowledge is incomplete. In verse 11, it says... When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. The only thing that we know for sure is that we don't know everything for sure. And Paul draws a contrast, a child to an adult. It's like there's a, there's a child, there's an adult, and he uses three areas, speech, thought, and reasoning. When he's talking about speaking, he's talking about speaking as a child. And, and as a child... We have limited vocabulary. We speak with incorrect grammar. We misuse words. We mispronounce words. And we even do that as adults sometimes. Judy's great aunt was having dinner at our house and began to choke on her food. And I jumped in, into action and, and performed the Heim, Heimlich maneuver. So how many have done that before? Heimlich maneuver. It's a, very, it's a critical maneuver. And retelling the incident later, Judy said, yeah, Mark, Mark came in and he did the Heimlich remover. And I said, that's probably a better description of the Heimlich maneuver. But we laugh and we enjoy the process. We speak in certain ways, then we speak as an adult. We have a complete vocabulary. We, we, we use words correctly. We understand the use of words, pronounce them correctly. Now, that doesn't mean that a child's speaking is wrong or invalid, it's just they have not yet arrived. They're not yet complete. So when it talks about this age versus the next age, speaking as a child. Then there's the illustration of thinking as a child. He said, we are thinking like children. The illustration of childlike thought. We have many misconceptions. When we're young, our parents know everything. We turn 16 and our parents know nothing. Isn't that, didn't that happen to you? There's a, there's a boy named Danny Dutton, his, he was age eight, and he had a third grade assignment, and his assignment was entitled Explain God, okay? Explain God. This is Danny Dutton, age eight, explanation of God. He says, one of God's main, job, main jobs is making people. He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies, I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that up to the mothers and fathers. I think that works out pretty good. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on as some people like preachers and things pray at other times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV on account of this. He hears everything, not only our prayers, there must be a lot of noise that's going into his ears unless he has thought of a way to turn it off. 
God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your parents' head and ask for something they said you couldn't have. <laughs> you should always go to Sunday school because it makes God happy, and if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip Sunday school to do something you think will be more fun like going to the beach. This is wrong. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp. But God can. It's good to know he's around when you're scared of the dark and when you can't swim very good and you get thrown in the real deep water by big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. Actually, there's profound truth. Thinking as a child, and then there's thinking as an adult. And Paul says, that's what it's like, reasoning or thinking as a child. Then there's reasoning as a child. We do not have the capacity, complete capacity to reason. As an adult, we will have more capacity. This does not mean children are ignorant or stupid, just incomplete. And that is where we are. That's where we are. When it comes to our love, our faith, the theology, our knowledge, it's not invalid, it's just incomplete. And that's why the Corinthians were elevating certain spiritual gifts. They were over-spiritualizing things. And that when we look at the spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy, said they're compared to what's coming in the end, they're childish. No, it doesn't, not childish, they're incomplete because they will be replaced someday. Tongues and prophecy and knowledge are all considered part of the gifts that God has given us. Gordon Fee says the problem with over-spiritualized eschatology as if tongues, the language of angels, meant that they were already partakers of the ultimate state of spiritual existence. This is not a condemnation of the gifts. It's a relativizing of them. Gifts do not belong to the future, but only the present. They are childhood in comparison to adulthood. And Paul goes on to correct the imbalance and urges their proper use, but pursuing love is better. It's not so much dealing with childishness versus growing up. The difference is really between the present and the future. The behavior of a child is appropriate to childhood, so the gifts are appropriate to the present life of the church. Let her see our vision is distorted. We don't see that clearly. Verse 12 talks about a poor reflection in a mirror. Now we see in a mirror dimly, a reflected image like looking in a mirror or a photograph. How many of you have ever looked at a picture of yourself and said, that doesn't look like me? Nobody's done that? You looked at a picture and said, oh, it doesn't look like me at all. Yeah. Basically, pictures don't lie, but what it means is it doesn't make me look good. <laughs> That's usually what it means. But a picture is incomplete. You, you can have a picture of a person, but the liveness of the present person is not there. And our present vision of God is like that. We have a certain amount of vision, but it's not the complete. That's going to complete when we meet him face to face in the, in the, in the future age. Okay? This vision is incomplete. He says the perfect will come. And when the perfect comes, it says the partial will be done away with. Perfect is teleon or from teleos, meaning complete or perfect or whole. And it's a corrective. Now, some people thought this whole passage said that tongues 
and prophecy are going to go away when the scriptures come because that's the perfect. That's a, that's, that's not, then you'd have to take knowledge out of there too and say knowledge is going to go away with that as well. Not even dispensationalists or cessationists use this verse for that anymore. The word teleos or end times means when Jesus comes, there will be a completion at the age. And the point is that all spiritual gifts are part of the church age. That's what we're in, the church age. When Jesus comes, the gifts will no longer be needed since we'll be in the presence of Jesus face to face. Then we don't need that. It says we will see him as he is. We'll know all things when we meet Jesus face to face. So that's what he's saying. He's saying this is what you're practicing now and this is part of the church age and it's like a child to an adult. It's like a mirror versus the real thing. It's like, it's like seeing things darkly and we'll see things clearly when we know everything. And then he says, the only thing that transcends time, past, present, and future, that will not pass away when Jesus comes is love. Love. Love is the only overarching expression. It's the timelessness of God himself. We find that love lasts forever. Love never fails. Love is permanent. Love is transcendent. The gifts belong to the now, but love transcends the now. So we've seen the importance of love, the character of love, and the permanence of love. And if one wants to practice and invest in something that lasts forever, invest in love, practice love, because love never ends. It's eternal, always. Verse 13 reads, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us an illustration of, of love. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we realize and understand that we do not have the capacity to love like this, but it's your Holy Spirit who loves through us that can, can permeate our lives. You, so what squeezes out of us Every pore in our body is the love of Jesus Christ. It's what lasts forever. And all these, these other religious expressions or faith expressions or expressions of good works and all of the things that we celebrate and we do and they're good things to do, but without love, they're nothing. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would permeate this people with love. That when people look at Oakland Wesleyan Church, they say, you know what? They love each other. That they would say, I would like to be part of a community that loves. I, I want to be part of that. And so, Lord, we're just asking that you do that. So that our efforts are not empty, but eternal because of love. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? I just want to make a few comments about this week, what happened in America. First of all, remember God is sovereign. And if you wonder what's going on, I challenge you to read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. It gives us historical perspective. 
What we read in that, those passages of scripture demonstrate that when the leadership, the king and his leaders were fully committed to godly principles and righteousness and putting away false gods, God prospered them economically. He put the enemies at bay. There was not this destruction. But when there was lawlessness at the top, and we have in Washington, we have corruption in our government like I've never seen before. And I'm not talking about one party or the other. I'm just talking about corruption that is, that is systemic throughout our government. And it's because we've left the righteousness of God. Make no mistake, no matter what your professors or teachers have told you, this was founded as a Christian nation. Most or a large percentage of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were pastors who signed at potential of a death warrant when they signed that declaration. The establishment of this government on godly principles, we've left that. Now, when you see things that happen, the first thing is you get angry. Don't get angry. Pray, okay? Turn that focus into prayer. We desperately need renewal. Our answers are not political. Our answers are not in the right people. We have Christians in all over the government, and that's great. But our answer is to return this country to the morality and biblical basis following the one true God and putting away other gods. That's what we pray for. Now, you can pray here in Eau Claire and affect Washington. You can pray here and affect Minneapolis. You can pray here and make a difference in Louisiana. You can pray here, make a difference anywhere. So when you see these things happen, the first reaction is anger and despair and what's happening. Don't pray. Just pray. Because that is where it's going to make a difference. God's in control, but he's calling the church to be the church. We need the renewal of our church so this can make a difference, so we can make a difference. So I just want to challenge you to do that. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.